a millionaire. You remember that? It was actually the name of a short-lived reality TV show that aired in uh, 2000. Fifty hopeful young women, one from every state, were given the opportunity to catch the eye of millionaire Rick Rockwell. The winner was Darva Conger. She married him in front of 22 million viewers on primetime TV. It looked like her dreams had come true. She was the bridegroom's choice. But there were some problems with the bridegroom. He wasn't quite all he appeared to be. His finances weren't quite what he claimed and a restraining order had been placed against him by a former fiancé for threatening to kill her. You know, even if he really had been a millionaire, who would want to be chosen by him? Well, there is a glorious and all-powerful bridegroom out there who is righteous, and we have all been invited to become that bridegroom's choice. We learn of that opportunity, not on a flat screen, but in a vision given to the Apostle John. A vision recorded for us in the 19th chapter of Revelation, a vision that opens with a great hallelujah chorus extolling the righteousness of the bridegroom that then goes on to picture the bridegroom's choice and then closes with the bridegroom's invitation. We begin with a look at the bridegroom's righteousness. After these things, I heard, as it were, a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God because His judgments are true and righteous. For He had judged the great harlot who is corrupting the earth with her immorality, and he has avenged the blood of his bondservants on her. And a second time they said, Hallelujah! Her smoke rises up forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God, who sits on the throne, saying, Amen! Hallelujah! And a voice came from the throne, saying, Give praise to to our God, all you his bondservants, you who fear him, the small and the great. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude. And as the sound of many waters and as the sound of mighty peals of thunder saying, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Now, in the 17th and 18th chapter of Revelation, we saw the beauty and the beast, the unholy alliance that often exists between the deceptive nature of riches and pleasure and the power of an antichrist state. We saw how many are deceived into making government or other societies of, of men into their God having been seduced away from Christ by the promises of the harlot of Babylon, or as we called her, the beauty. 
We then saw God's judgment on the beauty, on the harlot. We saw the doom of Babylon decreed and a great lament go up from those who had joined her in her immorality or profited from her vices. We also noted the only ones who didn't lament the destruction of Babylon's wealth were the hosts of heaven, the apostles, the prophets, and the saints, those who had invested their lives in the riches of heaven rather than the riches of earth. Well, in the 19th chapter, we have pictured the rejoicing of the righteous at the destruction of Babylon. And the scene begins with John hearing the loud voice of a multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. Now, as an aside, you may have noticed that word hallelujah in the text here four times. What you may not realize is that this is the only place where hallelujah appears in the English Bible. And it's really not an English word. It's actually a transliteration of a Hebrew word for praise Jehovah or praise the Lord. Alleluia. It's translated as any other Hebrew word when it appears in the Psalms, which were written in Hebrew. But it's kept as a Hebrew expression of praise as it was written in Revelation, which wasn't written in Hebrew. So it's an appropriate expression of praise, but it's used only here in our New Testament. But the multitude in heaven is praising God, saying hallelujah for the salvation, glory, and power demonstrated in the vision of the destruction of Babylon. Now, again, this was not yet taking place. It was a vision of something that was about to take place. They were being assured that God was going to judge the harlot. And by destroying Babylon, the Lamb would save his people from the ravages of Rome. He would prove his glory to be far superior to the self-proclaimed glory of the harlot and would show himself more powerful than the beast that carried her. And his judgment against her was true and righteous because she had been corrupting the earth with her immoralities and had been responsible for the death of many of God's faithful servants. It was right that the smoke from her ruins should rise up continually as a testimony against her. The 24 elders and the four living creatures who surround the throne of God cried, Hallelujah! the judgment of God, to the victory of Christ over the harlot. A voice from the throne then summoned all God's bondservants on earth, all who fear or reverence him from the small to the great, to join the heavenly host in singing praise to God for his victory over Babylon. And John heard the voice of a great multitude resounding like the roar of the sea and peals of thunder, saying, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Satan had tried to alter God's plan. He had offered to Jesus the kingdom of this world on his terms, of course, 
But the bridegroom proved himself to be righteous by rejecting the harlot. He saw through her elaborate adornment and seductive appeals. He knew her golden cup was full of immoralities and abominations against God and therefore rejected her. He avoided her trap and saved himself for the bride of his choice. But who is the bridegroom's choice? Let's see. Verses 7 and 8. Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. The great multitude of believers on earth, the church, is continuing its song of praise in in verse 7. It began in verse 6. Again, hallelujah. For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns and continues. Let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to Him. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. The church was offering praise to God because a beautiful aspect of His eternal reign was being pictured. The time when the Lamb takes His bride home. Now, the Lamb, as we've already seen, is Christ. But who is the bride who's made herself ready? Well, John's comment, following the praise of the church, gives us a clue. And it was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Whoever... The bride is, she's clothed a bit differently than the great harlot. You'll recall she was clothed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and, and pearls. But the bridegroom's choice, while not clothed shabbily, she's clothed in fine linen, has her garments described simply as bright and clean. There's no ostentatious show of wealth or glamour. There's no sensuality in her dress. She's simply dressed in fine linen that is bright and clean. But, of course, all of this is symbolic. And John goes on to say the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. So the saints are the bride of Christ. The bride is the corporate body of the saints. The bride is the church. And that really doesn't surprise us. When teaching us the proper relationship between husband and wife, Paul compared that relationship to that which exists between Christ and the church. The wife is to be subject to her husband just as the church is subject to Christ. And the husband is to love his wife the same way Christ loves the church and gave himself up for her. Then, after 
quoting from Genesis, For this cause a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Paul said in Ephesians 5.32, This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. The time is coming when Christ and the church will be one, no longer separated from one another by the barrier that exists between spiritual and physical. The time is coming when the Lamb will rejoice and receive His bride to Himself, a bride who has made herself ready by being clothed in fine linen, bright and clean. But where does she get her wedding gown? (laughs) Now, John said the linen is the righteous acts of the saints. But doesn't Isaiah say that all of our righteous deeds are like a filthy rag? Well, indeed he does. And he's right. There's no way we can make ourselves bright and clean by doing good. It only takes one sin, one sin, to make us unacceptable to God. Now, we tend to think that we become acceptable if our good deeds outweigh our bad. But that's not true. One sin so pollutes us that a holy God must reject us. But the gospel, the good news, is that we can be cleansed through the blood of Christ. Our sins become white as snow when they're washed in the blood of the Lamb. Jesus' death pays the penalty for our sins, and we're forgiven. Our sin is washed away, and we're made bright and clean. That's what makes us saints. That's what sets us apart, sanctifies us from the rest of mankind. It's the fact that we have been made clean. John even intimates that when he says in verse 8, it was given to her to clothe herself. We've been given the bright and clean linen with which to clothe ourselves. Now we have to put it on, so we do clothe ourselves. But the linen comes from Christ. The capacity to do anything that could be truly regarded as righteous comes from Christ as a gift to his bride. So we are the bridegroom's choice if we have clothed ourselves with the bright and clean linen he alone can provide. And... If we've kept those garments clean during this time of engagement, of physical separation, by remaining true and faithful to our betrothed. Perhaps I should say by remaining in close enough contact with him that he can keep our garments clean. But then again, who wears those garments? All who have accepted the invitation to the marriage supper of the Lamb and who have prepared 
themselves forth. Verses 9 and 10. And he said to me, write, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are true words of God. And I fell at his feet to worship him. And he said to me, do not do that. I am a fellow servant of yours and your brethren who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. John was so overwhelmed by this vision that he fell at the feet of the angel who was presenting it to him. The angel had to remind him that angels are nothing more than fellow servants of Christ and are not to be worshipped, even if the message they bear is overwhelming. And indeed, this message is, if you understand that you are one of those who have been invited to the marriage feast of the Lamb. And according to the parable of the marriage feast, you are, because all have been invited. We find the parable in Matthew 22, verses 1 through 14. And Jesus answered and spoke to them again in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. And he sent out his slaves to call those who had been invited to the wedding feast, and they were unwilling to come. Again, he sent out other slaves, saying, Tell those who have been invited, Behold, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fattened livestock are all butchered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went their way, one to his own farm, another to his business. And the rest seized his slaves and mistreated them and killed them. But the king was enraged and sent his armies and destroyed those murderers and set their city on fire. Then he said to his slaves, the wedding is ready. But those who were invited were not worthy. Go, therefore, to the main highways, and as many as you find there, invite to the wedding feast. And those slaves went out into the streets and gathered together all they found, both evil and good. And the wedding hall was filled with dinner guests. But when the king came in to look over the dinner guests, he saw there a man not dressed in wedding clothes. And he said to him, friend, how did you come in here without wedding clothes? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the servants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place, there should be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. According to the parable, God had told a limited number of people that they would be invited to the wedding feast of his son. But when the day came, they refused to come. They were too busy with their farms and businesses. They didn't want to be bothered. In fact, they seized the servants 
who had been sent to tell them the feast was ready. They mistreated them and even killed them. Now, this is a picture of the Jews' refusal to listen to the prophets and to accept Jesus as the Messiah of promise. And as a result of their refusal, their invitation was withdrawn. The king then sent his servants out into the highways of life with instructions to invite everyone they found, both the evil and the good. Many responded to the invitation, and the wedding hall was filled. But then the king noticed that there was one man who was not dressed for the wedding. And he cast him out into outer darkness where he said there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. The parable ends with a statement, for many are called. But few are chosen. What that means is that the invitation has gone out to everyone. That everyone is invited to attend the marriage feast of the Lamb. But only those who then clothe themselves in the fine linen provided by Christ, will be found acceptable when the supper begins. Only those who are so clothed will be the bridegroom's choice. So the invitation is open. And all who clothe themselves the bright and clean garments provided by Christ are welcome to come. So what about you this morning? Have you responded to the bridegroom's invitation? Apparently you have, or you wouldn't be here. You said, yes, I want to come. But have you made yourself ready for the marriage supper of the Lamb? Have you clothed yourself with Christ? Galatians 3.27 says, For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. Have you so clothed yourself? I know there are some here today who have not. If you haven't, I plead with you to do so. And there's still time. The marriage supper itself has not yet begun. You've responded to the invitation. You said, yes, I want to come. But have you clothed yourself with Christ? Have you made yourself ready? It's not enough to just gather in the hall. You've got to be dressed for the wedding. You've got to be dressed in those garments that are clean and bright that only heat 
can provide. You can't dress yourself in your good works. You can't say, well, I'm, I'm ready because I go to church. <laughs> I'm ready because I do good things. I'm ready because I love Jesus and I sing songs. I'm ready because I do good works. No. It's impossible to be made clean, to be made ready on the basis of your works. The only way you can be made ready for the banquet to begin is to take what is offered by Christ. Garments that only he can provide and then clothe yourself with them, with him. I realize there's a lot of confusion about baptism today. The mode of baptism, the timing of baptism, and we get confused by that. The bottom line, however, is that if you have not clothed yourself with Christ, the way he has invited you to do, you're in danger of being rejected when the banquet begins. don't want that to happen. don't want that to happen. If you've not done so, I plead with you to be washed in the blood of the Lamb. I plead with you to be clothed with Christ.